morning. I'd like to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. This morning we want to look at the subject of Yeshua the Rabbi. Yeshua the Rabbi. Let's look at John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So we have this Jewish ruler comes to our Lord. This man came to Yeshua by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Now, our Savior's name when he walked this earth was Yeshua. I got an opportunity to explain this to some people who were asking me, why do you always say that? I said, that's his name. That's why I say it. You know, his name's not Jesus. There was no J's in the Hebrew language. They don't, you know, that's not something that was his name. And if you read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, it makes it clear that he came from Hebrew descent through the tribe of Judah. In other words, he was Jewish. Some people don't get that connection there, okay? He was Jewish. He was born and raised by Jewish parents who raised him under Jewish culture. He spoke Hebrew. The name Yeshua is literally a translation of the Messiah's name. So when you say Yeshua, you're speaking Hebrew. That's his name. This is the name that the apostles would have known him by. That's the name his mother called him. The name Yeshua literally means Yahweh saves. And I think that's pretty significant. You know, to have a name that means that, that tells us a lot about this. Well, here in this text, we have Nicodemus, a Jewish leader. He calls Yeshua rabbi. Now, why did he do that? Well, Nicodemus called him rabbi because he was a Jewish rabbi. Now, many Christians don't understand this. So, I think we kind of remove the Bible from its culture. And we need to put it back there if we're going to understand it. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker, My Boss is a Jewish Carpenter? You ever seen that? How accurate is that? <laughs> Look at Mark 6.3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Jose, and Judah, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, the word carpenter here is the Greek word tekton. And tekton actually means a craftsman who builds. You know, I think we think of Yeshua as, you know, a framer or something. He's got his lumber and he puts the the boards together. But given that Israel's buildings were constructed of stones and rocks, Yeshua was likely a stonemason rather than a carpenter. He probably spent hours helping his father shape and cut stones. And I think that's kind of neat because knowing that Yeshua is a stonemason, Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.5. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Yeshua, the Christ. Peter tells his readers they are living stones and they're being shaped by the master stonemason, Yeshua the Christ. So Yeshua is not a carpenter, but he did work with his father as a stonemason. Now, what I want us to understand is that Yeshua was a Jewish rabbi. He didn't spend his adult life building houses, but building kingdom citizens. He functioned in the first century Israel as a man who was a Jewish rabbi. If you want to understand Yeshua, if you want to understand his teaching and how he does things and why he does things, you need to have some understanding of Jewish rabbis at that time. Well, let me back up just for a minute. Before we look at Yeshua the rabbi, I want you to understand that Yeshua of Nazareth was 
God made man. In theological language, this is called the doctrine of the hypostatic union, which is the doctrine of the personal union of two natures, the divine and the human of the Lord Yeshua. Yeshua is 100% God. He is 100% man. This is what we get the theological term, theanthropic, which comes from theos, God, and anthropos, man. He is the God-man. He is one person with two natures. Now, if you have trouble understanding the doctrine of the hypostatic union, you're not alone. Daniel Webster, the 19th century statesman, once dined in Boston with several eminent literary figures, and soon the conversation turned to Christianity. Webster, a convinced Christian, confessed his belief in Christ and his atoning work, and a Unitarian minister at the table responded, Mr. Webster, can you comprehend how Jesus Christ could be both God and man? No, sir, I cannot understand it, replied Webster. He said, I would be ashamed to acknowledge Christ as my Savior if I could comprehend it. He could be no greater than myself, and such is my conviction of accountability to God and my sense of sinfulness before Him and my knowledge of my own incapacity to recover myself that I feel I need a superhuman Savior. Amen. Good answer. (laughs) Good answer. You know, there's plenty of scriptural evidence that teaches us that Yeshua is God. The Tanakh taught that the Messiah would be God. This is a scripture you might associate with the holiday season, but it's really not connected with that. Um, Micah 5.2 But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me, to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. This is one of... Uh, who The one who is born in Bethlehem is to be eternal. The only person that is eternal is God. So Yeshua is Christ, the eternal God. Now the New Testament also, of course, affirms this in John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now the beginning here is the beginning of all beginnings. This is prior to the the Genesis being written or the Bible being written. This phrase could be rendered from all eternity. John in this verse establishes the pre-existence of Christ in eternity past. He already was when the beginning took place. Now notice what Yeshua said to the Jews of his day. In John 8.58, Yeshua said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. (laughs) How do you respond to that one? He made this staggering statement using the Tetragrammaton, which is the Old Covenant sacred name of God, Yahweh. Yeshua is saying that He, a man, pre-existed the patriarch Abraham who lived 2,000 years earlier. Look at Exodus 3.14. He says, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And He says, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. This is referring to absolute existence. By doing so, Yeshua claimed an existence that was timeless. There never was a time when Yeshua was not. He knows no past, no future. The Jews at the feast well knew that Yeshua claimed to be eternal God. And look at their response. They said, therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Yeshua hid himself and went out of the temple. 
Now his enemies knew that he claimed to be God. And you know, and I, the funny thing is, there are many today that claim to be Christians that don't know that. They don't even know what his enemies knew. He was God. Yeshua, who is eternal God, became a man, and we call this the incarnation, which comes from two Latin words, in plus cargo, meaning enfleshment, the act of assuming flesh. God chose to become united to true humanity. Paul teaches us this in Philippians 2. He tells us, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Yeshua. And the attitude he's talking about is humility. God became a man. That's humility. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So verse 6 teaches us that Yeshua is God. This is where the incarnation begins. This is the point from which he descends. God becomes a man. The word form here is morphe. And morphe has nothing to do with shape or size. Moulton and Milligan say morphe is a form which truly and fully expresses the being which underlies it. Morphe is the essential character of something. Yeshua pre-existed in the essence of God. Verse 6 says, that Christ did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And the word grasp here is from the Greek harpagmos, which means to take by force, to seize. It's used only here in the Scriptures. The noun refers to taking an attitude of seizing something. Our Lord didn't consider the expression of His divine essence such a treasure that He had to retain it at all costs. He was willing to waive His rights to the expression of deity. Let me give you a Curtis paraphrase of this. Who always being the exact essence of the eternal God did not consider equality with God as something that must be demonstrated. He didn't have, everybody didn't have to, you know, he wasn't walking around demonstrating his glory. The word equality here is Isis and it means exactly the same in size, quality, quantity, character, and number. We use it in English this way. For example, an isomer is a chemical molecule having a slightly different structure from another molecule, but being identical with it in terms of chemical elements and weight. Its schema may be different, but its morphe is the same. We use the term isomorph, having the same form, or isometric, equal in number, isosceles triangles, one with equal sides. Now, Paul is saying that Yeshua is exactly equal with God. Is God omniscient? Then so is Yeshua. Is God omnipresent? Then so is Yeshua. Is He omnipotent? Is He the Creator? Then so is Yeshua. If God is the beginning and the end, then so is Yeshua. And He makes that claim. So, but He did not consider equality with God as a prize that had to be hung on to. He's equal with God in every way. But while he walked the earth, he didn't look equal to God. He looked just like a man. He didn't grasp or clutch or cling, basically, to his rights, is what he's saying. And that's why we're to have this mind, we're to have a mind of humility that we don't have to, you know, have this attitude, do you know who I am? You know, I'm important. You know, that's not the right attitude here. Verse 7 says, but he emptied himself. And the word but is contrastive. Not this, but this. Emptied here is the Greek word, Kanao, and it means to make empty. Figuratively, it means to abase, to neutralize, to make of no effect, no reputation. This is what theologians call the doctrine of the kenosis, the self-emptying of Yeshua the Christ. Now, 
The big debate about this is what did he empty himself of? People say, well, he emptied himself of his attributes. Then he wouldn't be God. How can he do away with what's part of his essence? Look at John 17.5. It says, Now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He's asking to have his glory restored because the glory was put aside when he became a man. Now, the Greek noun here for glory is doxa. And the verb meant to appear or to seem, and then in time, the noun doxa that came from it meant an opinion. In time, the noun was used only for having a good opinion about some person, and the verb came to mean to praise or to honor due to the one who the good opinion was held. See, if a man had a right opinion about God, this meant that he was able to form a correct opinion of God's attributes. The Orthodox Jew knew God as all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, merciful, faithful, holy, just, loving, and so on, with all these other perfections. Now, when he acknowledges this, he is said to give glory to God. God's glory consists of His intrinsic worth embedded in His character. And all that could be known of God was merely an expression of that. Now, our word worth is somewhat equal to the word glory. The word worth refers to intrinsic character. The worth of a man is his character. You ever heard someone say, that person is worthless. They're saying he has no character. The worth of God's, the worth of God is God's glory. When we praise God, we're acknowledging his worth-ship. We shorten that to get the word worship. That's what worship is, folks. It's acknowledging God's worth. And that's why when we praise Him, we sing songs. Our songs need to be biblically correct, because if you're singing stuff that's not theologically correct, then you're not giving Him glory. You're not, you know, it's not worship, because you're not declaring His worth. Now, there's another, an entirely different meaning of the word glory, which is light or splendor. In Hebrew thought, an outward manifestation of God's presence involved a display of light. You can understand that from scriptures, right? This brilliant outward manifestation of God's presence was described by the word Shekinah. And in the Septuagint, the word doxa is often used to translate it. Now, you put these two meanings of the word glory together, and you have a clear picture of Christ's oneness with God and the humbling of himself that went on in the kenosis. When he became a man, he laid aside the brilliant manifestation of glory. Secondly, he veiled his glory in the sense that he didn't demonstrate his attributes. He didn't walk in the earth, on this earth, in the power of his deity. He walked this earth in the power of the Holy Spirit, totally dependent upon God. Now, that's important because if he's an example for us, I don't have a divine nature to lean on, but I do have the Holy Spirit to depend on. So I can walk as he walked in dependence upon the Spirit. From his own will, Yeshua didn't use his attributes to benefit himself. They were not surrendered They were voluntarily restricted in keeping with the Father's plan. And Christ gave us an independent exercise of certain divine attributes in living among men with their human limitations. So He would truly be a man. Dependence is a necessary characteristic of real humanity. Christ lived in dependence on the Holy Spirit and all that He did while He walked here on this earth. Now in Matthew 4, the temptations of Christ were related to his deity and the kenosis. In his humanity, he longed for what his deity could provide. 
He didn't exercise the prerogatives of his deity, but he was dependent upon the Father. Yeshua is the God-man. He lived and functioned as a man. I think we need to understand that. He lived and functioned as a man in first century Israel. And if we're going to understand this, we need to get involved in isagogics. You understand that word, right? Okay, it's a new word. Put this in your dictionary. Isagogics is a word that has really all but disappeared from the English dictionaries. But in English, an isagogue is an introduction. So isagogic is defined in the 1955 Oxford Dictionary, English Dictionary, as introductory studies, especially that part of theology which is an introduction to exegesis. Isagogics is the study of the historical and cultural background of a biblical passage. In other words, we want to take the story, we want to put it in its history, we want to put it in its culture, so we can see what's really going on there. Because we tend to read things of our culture into the text and it doesn't work. It just doesn't work at all. The Bible has to be interpreted in the light of the time in which it was written. So we have to learn how those people thought, what they experienced, what they saw. And that's going to make so much more sense to us as we read Scripture. All Scripture was written for every believer. 2 Timothy 3.16 It's inspired. It's for, it profits us. But not all Scripture was written to every believer. If our goal is to understand what the writers wanted his readers to understand, we need to know something about history. Yeshua was a Jewish rabbi. Now, from accounts found in Jewish sources, we can form, a, I think, a reasonably accurate picture of what Yeshua was doing in his early childhood and his adolescence. Now, I don't think it was like the Apocrypha describes it. He was stretching lumber for his father to make buildings. Oh, this board's too short. I can fix that, Dad. Whoop, here you go, you know. Or making ducks out of clay and then throwing them in the air and they fly. You know, that stuff's in the Apocrypha, and that's why the Apocrypha's not in our Bible. Okay, you got that? <laughs> All right. What he was doing... <laughs> What he was doing as a young child was he was committing to memory large amounts of material. Scripture and commentary on Scripture. All the available sacred literature of his day. He was immersing himself in that. This is exactly what most of the other Jewish boys in Yeshua's day was doing. To the time they were 12, all they did was memorize Torah. And most of the Jewish boys, by the time they were 12, had the whole Torah memorized. They didn't work in commentary. They didn't do midrash. They just simply memorized the text. Backward, forward, any way you want to look at it, they knew those first five books. You know, most Christians today have trouble reading those five books, let alone memorizing them. But the memorization of the written and oral Torah was such a large part of the Jewish education that most contemporaries of Yeshua had large portions of material memorized. So the culture he's dealing with, they know the Word of God. It's, they have it firmly committed to memory. Now, Professor Rabbi Shemuel Safare, who was Professor Emetrius of Jewish history, history at the Messianic and Talmudic period at the Hebrew University, writes this, The Scriptures were known almost by heart by everyone. From quite early in the Second Temple period, one could hardly find a little boy in the street who didn't know the Scripture. According to Jerome, who lived in Bethlehem and learned Hebrew from a local Jewish residence in order to translate the Scripture into Latin, producing the Vulgate Bible, 
There doesn't exist a Jewish child who doesn't know by heart the history from Adam to Zerubbabel, from the beginning to the end of the Bible. Perhaps this was a bit of an exaggeration on Jerome's part, but in most cases, his reports have proved reliable. So he's saying, all the kids, all the little kids, they knew the scripture. They had it all memorized. And Yeshua was born, he grew up and he spent his ministry among people who knew the scripture by memory who debated its application with enthusiasm, who loved God with all their hearts, all their souls, and all their might. And God prepared this environment carefully so that Yeshua would have exactly the context He needed to present His message of the kingdom of heaven. Now, when I say this, I'm not talking about Judah and Jerusalem. Okay? I'll get into that here in a minute. He fit His world perfectly. Understanding this helps understand the great faith and courage his followers who left Galilee and went into the whole world to bring this good news had. Their courage, their message, their methods they used were completely in devotion to God and His Word. And this, this, I, this education that they got was born in the religious communities in Galilee. Alright? Now you see, if you can see the red line down there at the bottom, that's Jerusalem, and the X up there at the top, that's Galilee, Capernaum. Alright? That's even a closer up look there, at Capernaum. Capernaum was a small village of about 2,500 people. And, you know, people tend to think of it as some kind of small hick town, but that would be wrong. It wasn't its day, in Yeshua's day, it was the Harvard or the Yale. If you take the Mishnah, which is the record of Jewish thinking from A.D. 0 to 100, there are more, more quotes from rabbis from Capernaum than all the rest of the rabbis in the world put together. The synagogue school found in Capernaum is four times larger than any synagogue school found until the 1500s. And this is the world where Yeshua ministered, a world highly educated in the Word of God. And by the time Yeshua began His public ministry, He had not only received the thorough religious training typical of the average Jewish man of his day, he had probably spent years studying with one of the outstanding rabbis in Galilee. Yeshua thus appeared on the scenes as a respected rabbi himself. Now, the term rabbi is derived from the Hebrew word rab, which in biblical Hebrew meant much or many, numerous. It also was sometimes used to refer to high government officials or army officers. In Yeshua's day, Rab was used to refer to the master or slave or a disciple. Thus, rabbi literally meant my master, my teacher. It was a term of respect used by slaves. Now, the term rabbi in the time of Yeshua did not necessarily refer to a specific office or occupation. That would be true only after the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. It became a more of a, an official position. It was a word meaning great one. Master, teacher, applied to many kinds of people in everyday speech. But it was used as a term of respect for one's teacher, even though the formal position of rabbi came later. So calling Yeshua rabbi by the people of his day was a measure of great respect. Alright? For him as a person, for him as a teacher, not just a reference to the activity of teaching. Many people in Yeshua's day referred to him as rabbi. He was called that by his disciples, John 4.31. In the meanwhile, his disciples were requesting him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Peter called him Rabbi. Peter said to Yeshua, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let's make the three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. The Sadducee called him Rabbi. 
In Luke 20, 27, 28. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. And they questioned him saying, Teacher, Moses wrote of us that if a man's brother dies, and he goes on here, and teacher here is didaskalos, which means doctor, master, teacher. It's the same idea, Rabbi. The lawyer calls him this in uh, Matthew 22:35, And one of them, a lawyer, asked him saying a question, teaching, testing him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? The crowds called him rabbi. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now note the diversity of those who addressed Yeshua as rabbi. You've got a lawyer, a rich man, a Pharisee, a Sadducee, Peter, ordinary people. Clearly there's a wide range of Yeshua's contemporaries who called him rabbi. What was it like to be a first century rabbi? Well, from the gospel accounts, Yeshua clearly appears as a typical first century Rabbi, he depended upon hospitality from the people. He taught outdoors, in homes, in villages, in the synagogue, in the temple. He had disciples who followed him as he teached. This is the very image of a Jewish teacher in the land of Israel at that time. Perhaps the most convincing proof that Yeshua was a rabbi is his style of teaching. For he used the same methods of scripture interpretation and instruction as other Jewish teachers of his day. A simple example of this is Yeshua's use of the parables to convey teachings. Parables uh, such as Yeshua used were extremely prevalent among the ancient Jewish sages. There's over 4,000 of them um, survived in rabbinic literature. It just was a very typical style of teaching. In Yeshua's day, there were two types of rabbi. The first rabbi were called Torah teachers. All right, The word Torah, used in the first five books of the Bible, Torah teachers, were people who were considered to be masters of the Torah which meant they knew the first five books of the Bible by memory. All right, so anybody want to sign up to be a Torah teacher? Got to do a lot of memory first, all right? Second, they were master teachers. They could use parables, alliteration. They were recognized by the community as teachers of God's Word. A Torah teacher could only teach what the community believed was right. That's kind of interesting, I think. You can't go come up with some different teaching. You weren't allowed to do that. They couldn't do new teaching. They had to teach what the community accepted. And a Torah teacher would teach in three parts like this. It is written. And then he would quote the text from memory. And then he would say, that means... And he would use parables, stories to explain what the text was talking about. And then he would say, according to. And he would quote one of the rabbis as authority the meaning had given to the text. All right, so it's written. That means give commentary on it according to. That's his, you know, power. I'm backing it up with this rabbi said this, and there you go. Now, these men were brilliant teachers, but they were limited by the authority of others. In Yeshua's day, there were two groups of what were called rabbis with shmika. Now, rabbis with shmika, we know from history there's about a dozen of them by name, that lived from 30 B.C. to A.D. 70. They're not common. They didn't exist in Judea at all, these rabbis were Shemekah. Judea was a mess, okay? That was the temple, and that was all the religious nonsense that was going on. Now, these rabbis were Shemekah were masters of the Torah and the half-Torah. The half-Torah is a Hebrew word that simply means the rest. In other words, they were masters of the whole Tanakh. All right, they knew the Tanakh by memory. Now, Tanakh 
You're familiar with that word. It's an acronym that identifies the Hebrew Bible. It's based on the initial Hebrew letters of each of the texts in three parts. The TA stands for Torah, meaning instruction, the first five books, often called the Pentateuch. The NA, Nevi'im, which meant the prophets. And thirdly, the, the KH meant Ketavim, which were the writings. So that's what Torah comes from. It's just a use of those words there. Now, the rabbis knew the entire Tanakh by memory, these, these rabbis. Can you even... Can you even fathom that? I mean, how many verses could you recite from the talk? I mean, if our government came and took our Bibles away, I know you can't imagine that in this government, you know, but it, you know, could not, it might not be long, people, and took our Bibles away, and we just got together, how much can we put together ourselves? How much can we create again? You know, think of the, the commitment, think of the time it took to memorize the whole Tanakh. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say most Christians have never even read the whole Tanakh. They'll little memorize it. All right? Well, they were master teachers, these rabbis were Shemekah, and they were recognized by the community. And many of them were healers. Now, most miracles that Yeshua did, except for raising the dead, these rabbis were Shemekah did. They cast out demons, they healed the blind, they healed lepers, they fed people, they caused storms. But most of the miracles Yeshua did were done by the rabbis of his day that had Shemekah. The Mishnah records 150 to 180 miracles done by other rabbis with Shemekah. Because of their unique ability to teach Torah and to heal, they received what was known as Shemekah. And Shemekah means authority. They had the authority to teach new ideas. <laughs> That's kind of interesting. Um, if we put that, you know, qualification on pastors today, you can't teach anything new until you have the whole Bible memorized. We wouldn't get any new teaching, would we? <laughs> everybody would be following everybody else because we can't, you know, we're not there yet, alright? Well, these men were so close to God that He had given them new insight into the Word. Hillel, Shemai, Gamaliel, these were all rabbis that had Shemekah. This was their teaching method. Alright? They would say, it is written. They would say, you have heard, that means this. But I tell you, it means this. See, they're straightening things out because they can give new teaching. Do you recognize that form of teaching? Does that sound familiar? Well, if you look at Matthew 5.27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now notice what the people said of Yeshua's teaching. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Yeshua was one of the select group that were considered teachers with authority. They, he had the ability to make new teaching. Now, how do you get Shmika? Well, you had to have the Tanakh memorized, the whole thing as well as the Mishnah, had to have that memorized, and you had to be a gifted teacher. You also had to have two other rabbis with Shemekah who publicly put their hands on your head and declared from God that you had God's authority. Now, when that happened, you were considered a rabbi who could make new teaching. Over and over in the New Testament, people would come to Yeshua and ask Him, where did you get your authority? 
All right, we see that Matthew twenty-one thirty-three. And when he had come <coughs> into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him, and as he was teaching, and said, "By what authority are you doing? By what authority are you doing these things? <coughs> Who gave you this authority? Where did you get your shmika? Is what they're asking him. Where'd you get this? How'd you get it? Who gave you shmika? Who are your rabbis? Now, there's a Jewish rabbinic technique that's commonly used to this day, where they would begin a debate or a dialogue with a question. And the response from the group always comes in the form of another question. The question that comes is, first of all, an answer to that question, but it also extends to a deeper level. And we see this in Scripture. And it came about after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So Yeshua was asking questions, and they were amazed at the questions. We see many times in Yeshua's teaching ministry that he'll respond to a question with a question. And listen, this is what you got to understand. His question is the answer to their question, and taking the discussion further. And it came about one of those days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders confronted him. And they spoke saying to him, tell us by what authority are you doing this? In other words, where did you get your smika? Or who is the one who gave you this authority? Who did you get it from? Who's the one that laid their hands on you and gave you this authority? So to this, Yeshua, Yeshua responds in a typical rabbinic fashion with a question. And he answered and said to them, I shall also ask you a question, and you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Now, he is asking, did John get his authority, his shmika, from God or men? Now remember, his question answers theirs. So their question was, where did you get your shmika? His answer is, John. What did he just tell them? He says, I got my shmika from John. When did John declare God's authority being on Yeshua? Well, in John 1.29, it says, The next day he saw Yeshua come to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on, on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Who is the second one? So John, Yeshua is saying, John gave me Shemekah, but he had to have a second one, so the second one, to declare God's authority on him was in Mark 1, 10, and 11. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. So Yeshua is the only rabbi in history who got his Shemekah directly from God himself. Now these rabbis who Shemekah had Talmud, or disciples. Torah teachers didn't have disciples. Only rabbis with Shemekah had Talmudim. Yeshua was not the only rabbi who had Talmudim. What made Yeshua stand out was his age. I mean, he's only in his early 30s. Apart from Yeshua, the youngest rabbi that we know of with Shmika was Rabbi Akiba. Akiba was 60 years old. Hillel got his when he was 70. Shammai when he was 85. And see, the, the thing that they question, how can you get Shmika at 30? That's blew their minds. How can Yeshua know the Tanakh at 30 years old? How does he know all this stuff? See, each of these rabbis of Shemekah, they had their own way of coming up with new teaching. 
And that method of interpretation was called their yoke. The yoke of the Torah is the way that you take the burden of keeping Torah on your shoulder. You do it according to their method. Every rabbi had a different yoke. Torah teachers would teach the accepted interpretations or yoke of their community. They didn't come up with new ones. So if you wanted to know what a rabbi with Shemekah's yoke was, you would simply ask him, what's the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment will tell you what his yoke is. What was Yeshua's yoke? Well, he says, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. This is Yeshua's yoke. Now the rabbis had other yokes. So the Talmud would test the various rabbis to find out what their yoke was. We see this happening often to Yeshua in the Bible. Various people would come up to him and they test his yoke. They wanted to know if his interpretation of Torah fit with the Torah. Now picture that you have these different rabbis with their different yokes, all really trying to understand the Torah. And then along comes Yeshua and says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yeshua is saying, Does your yoke tire you out? Come and take my yoke. And I don't think he was speaking to the unsaved here. He's not talking about the burden of sin that people you know, have. Um, he's talking about their understanding of the Scripture. Many people burdened with sin, you know, want this removed. But I, and so that's how most people translate this. But I, I don't think that's what he's talking about here at all. What was Yeshua's yoke? It was love God with everything in you. Love your neighbor yourself. Is that an easy yoke? Well, it's easy to understand. Maybe not so not so easy to do. But yoke gives you the picture of an animal with a yoke pulling a burden. The burden in keeping the will of God, it's going to take hard work. You think it's easy to obey God? No, it's difficult in order to do that. But you have to have a yoke. Your yoke is the way you interpret Torah. And that's we I think we kind of understand that today because people have different hermeneutics, different ways of understanding the Bible, and depending on what that is, some yokes are pretty heavy. There's people that are legalists, they're Pharisees. Man, it's a yoke that crushes people. In Yeshua's day, the great teachers used a technique that's still today called, or it is today called remez. I don't know that they called it back then. Remez or hint. In which they used part of a scripture passage in a discussion. And we see this a lot in Yeshua. He'll, he'll, pull just little sections from here and little section from there and kind of put it all together. And you're like, man, he's just jumping all over in the Scriptures, using different Scriptures. When they did that, they assumed their audience's knowledge of the Bible would allow them to deduce for themselves the full meaning. Like I said, Yeshua used this method often. And an example of this is Yeshua's comments to Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Yeshua said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, we read that and we think, yeah, that's cool, no, no big deal. You know, we don't think anything of it. But the background of this statement is Ezekiel 34. And in that text, we have Yahweh angry with the leaders of Israel for scattering and harming the flock, the people of Israel. And he states that he himself will become a shepherd 
He will seek the lost ones and He will deliver them or to save them. And these people that He's saying this to know Ezekiel 34. They know that. They know that Yahweh has promised to come and seek and save the lost. So here comes Yeshua and He says, I've come to seek and save that which was lost. Now look at the text in Ezekiel 34.16. Yahweh is speaking here. He says, I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. So based on this, the people of Yeshua's day understood that the Messiah to come was going to seek and save the lost. And so by using this phrase, knowing the people knew the Scripture, Yeshua said several things. They heard several things as He spoke this. To the people He said, I am the Messiah and Yahweh no less. To the leaders whose influence kept Zacchaeus out of the crowd, He said, you have scattered and harmed the flock of God and I will bring judgment on you. And to Zacchaeus He said, you're one of God's lost sheep. He still loves you. He is seeking and saving His flock. And this technique indicated, you know, just a brilliant understanding of Scripture and incredible teaching skills on Yeshua's part. It also demonstrated the background knowledge of Scripture of the common people of that day. They understood you could do this. Now, we're in a day and we're in a time when you can't really use Scripture to talk to people, okay? Christians don't know Scripture. We're talking about this at the conference. What, you know, they were saying, what is the biggest problem we have as preterists and, and moving this movement forward? And my response was, the biggest problem we have is biblical ignorance. You can't talk to people about predators because they have no knowledge of the Scripture. So you have no, you know, it's really hard to lay a foundation. So I think what we have to do is we have to get people to somehow get in the Word of God, learn something about it, so they can understand what we're saying. You can't talk Scripture with people who know no Scripture. And I think if we want to understand the Scripture, we want to understand the words of Yeshua, We need to understand the culture. We need to understand that he was a rabbi. He taught using methods and techniques of a rabbi. He taught to people who knew the Word of God. So if you really want to understand his teaching, you got to learn the Scriptures. Especially, you got to learn the Tanakh, because everything he's teaching is coming from the Tanakh. And the more you know your Bible, the more you understand what he's saying when he says these things. We need to read it. We need to reread it. We need to read it until it comes out in our speech, until it controls our actions. And that's the advantage of Yeshua's audience in that day. The Galileans had such an understanding of Scripture. It was everything to them. And so when He makes these statements, they know where He's going. They understand what's happening. There's, there's a remez that He uses with John the Baptist, which, which is really cool. And you just you don't get it if you don't get remez. But John says to Yeshua, Are you the one to come, or do we look for another? And Yeshua says, you go back and tell John that, you know, the blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the dead are being raised. But he leaves something out. And if you go back to the original text that he pulls those scriptures from and read it, one of the things in that text is the prisoners are set free. But he doesn't say that to John. And that's why, you know, it says later in the text that he became offended at this. Why? Because he's quoting all these, well, I'm a prisoner right now, but he doesn't say that because basically Yeshua is saying, you're not getting out. You're not going to be set free. And it's like, wow, it just it gives me goosebumps thinking about it. But, you know, there's so much to the Scriptures that we got to apply ourselves. we got to 
put some work and some time in. We need to shut off the TVs. We need to get away from the games, get away from some of the things that are so insignificant and begin to spend time in the Word of God that it might have an effect on our life. The coolest thing to me about the Bible is that you're never going to get to the point where you got it all down. You know? I remember many, many years ago, I thought I had my theology together. I can remember, Rich and I laugh about this all the time when we're together because we were sitting at McDonald's. We used to meet there for devotions in the morning and we're talking. I said, you know, it's getting easier for me now because I pretty much have my theology together. So it's easier when I'm working through the scripture because I know what I believe. And it was not shortly after that that preterism hit and I realized I don't know anything. I don't know anything at all. And I'm still learning that lesson every day, you know. I mean, I'm learning that I, I don't have a clue. There's so much there. But I'm excited to get all I can while I'm here. So uh, we just got to commit ourselves to it. We got to we got to do what we can to understand what's in there. And it takes a little work on our part, you know. And that frustrates people. But I'm sorry, you're you're English speaking people, you know. In an American country, you have no clue about there. You got to learn their culture. You got to learn their language. You got to learn some things, some history that's going on, and it's going to help you bring the scriptures to light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Father, it's an interesting concept to think of our Lord Yeshua as a rabbi. Father, he truly fit into that category. His teaching was incredible. And I pray for us, Lord, that we would have the heart, Lord, of those first century Galileans to be committed to memorizing and learning the Scripture. That we'd know it, then when Yeshua speaks to us through the Word, We'd know what he's saying. We'd know the background. We'd know the history. We'd understand the full meaning of what he's communicating. Lord, we live in a day that's so rich with helps for our Bible study. I pray we'd avail ourselves to them, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.